Lord, as we begin tonight, I just sense your presence here. I sense it in the worship of your people. and What I see and what I feel in this moment from the praise of your people. Lord, thank you for responding to us tonight. As we prepare to go through this passage, Lord, I just pray. Um, you know how dear it is to my heart. How meaningful it is uh, to me personally. And I pray you'd open our hearts to see ourselves in this story of Leah and Rachel. And the heartbreak of it. Knowing uh, the answers that we'll come to at the conclusion of this passage. And what you were doing. Not just for the promises, but what you did for these women. What you did for Jacob. And I pray we'd be moved by it as we talk about it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, uh, we have the privilege of going through uh, the birth of the 12 tribes. Now, it ends up only being 11. Benjamin's not born in this passage. Uh, but to me, this passage is very sacred. And it's sacred for a lot of reasons. Um, I got to preach this sermon at Grace, my church in Portland, uh, in the main service about three years ago. And I had titled it The Unloved Wife. And <clears throat> the point of that sermon was talk about the, the sadness of Leah's condition and the sadness you see of Leah in here. So this sermon, it's not the same sermon, but um, it runs along the same lines. This time I've decided to name it The Chosen Wife. Chosen Wife. And by the end of it, I think you'll understand why. But as we go through this passage, I mean, this passage is a perfect Jeremy passage. Like, it's everything that I love about the Bible. It's about names, which if you know anything about me, names are very important. They mean a lot to me. Their identity, if you don't know that. Names are our identity. They define it for us. Um, in part, yes, because we're called by them. But in part, there is a prophetic reality of them. There's something to that. And the Bible is unashamed to talk about the prophetic nature of names. And this passage where we have the naming of the 11 and, and what it means to each of their mothers as they name their children is so significant and for me, this is, you know, key, children are really key to me. That's just something I really deeply care about. And that's what this passage is about. It's the birth of these kids. But it also is about names and, and the reality of identity. Who is, this, who is this people that God is choosing for himself? Who are they going to be? What are they going to be like? And equally so, it's a passage about the outcast, which is, of course, near and dear to my heart. And this story is quintessentially about the outcast. What I love about it, too, is that uh, it's unflinching, unflinching in, in, its, in its portrayal of suffering. One of the things I love about the Bible, one of the things that matters most to me about the Bible, unlike modern day American Christianity, where we really do not share ourselves in any deep sense, unless, you know, you're exceptional. The Bible unflinchingly looks at people's lives, both the sinful valleys of it and the the high mountaintops of it and to see what Leah and Rachel are going through is to see kind of the weight of those things to put yourself in the situation and imagine what it would be like to be one of these women to be Jacob it, it shows you the weight that humans live with in their relationships so it's got all these factors going on at the same time, and it's, it's really important to me uh, that I do it justice. So I hope by the end of tonight you'll see the power of this often uh, overlooked passage, this passage that has not talked about much. It doesn't seem like there's much to go through. But there is. There's a deep reality about God's, not just the reality of suffering, which is important to me, but also what is God's answer to suffering. And it gives us a perspective that takes us out of just the single life that we live, where we can be so invested inward, so 
focused on our own condition and our own reality that we live with every day. And we can't step back and look at the picture of what's going on through generations. This story answers that in terms of suffering. So I'm, I'm excited to share it with you tonight after, you know, three years of, of this passage being on my heart. But we'll start with the defining line, right? This passage opens up in chapter 29, verse 31. And it's going to be the defining line of this text. It's this. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And in that, you have the essence of these women's pains. Both very different, both very real. Now the word for unloved there, if you translate it literally, it's the word hated in Hebrew. The Lord saw that Leah was hated now, in this case, it's the same word that shows up in Malachi. Remember the beginning of Malachi. Now, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's the word used in Malachi, talking about the nations. What's the point of that word? Well, it is literally hated, but it has a context that's important to keep in mind, especially as it relates to what I was talking about, the chosen wife. What it's referring to is a lack of of choice. It, you are not the favored one. You are the unchosen. So that's why God can say in Malachi, Jacob, I have loved, he chose them. And Esau, I have, ate, I have hated, I did not choose them. They, my favor does not rest on them. Here it's the same. Leah was hated. She was unchosen. And when the Lord saw her condition, he opened her womb. Rachel, however, though she was chosen, she was loved, she was barren. The same condition of all the matriarchs that we've seen. We saw it with Rebecca. We saw it with Sarah. This is a condition that runs in the chosen line. So with this, we see the heart of the problem. These women pitted against each other, sisters by birth, rivals by marriage, are each dealing with a deep and serious pain. Leah is married to a man that will never love her. Now, to some extent, is it possible she was involved in the deception we saw last week? You'd imagine so to some extent. But this is a culture in which uh, we can all acknowledge the patriarch rules the roost. It's very possible that this was Laban's plan and Leah had no choice but to go along with it. Whatever the case, Jacob is clearly not happy with it. And, to be fair, Jacob is in a situation that is not of his design. I talked a lot last week about Jacob paying for the way he's lived his life. And that is true. But I'm going to step it back for a moment this week because we have to look at it from both ends. Yes, Jacob is paying for the way he's lived his life. He's paying for the sins he's chosen to engage in. But... We also have to recognize Jacob is in a situation that he did not make. He did not choose to have Leah end up in his tent. This situation is not his fault. It was not something he made happen. Jacob is in a very awful situation trying to make his best of it, or at least seeming to. But he doesn't love her. He never has. So, of course, she is unloved. But the one he does love 
She is barren and has no children. The greatest shame of a woman's life. We've talked about this three times as it relates to the Old Testament. This is the greatest shame that women of that society could bear. To be childless, to not build up the family name, to not raise up the next generation for your family. So that's where we're left after the events of last week, after the deception after the pain of what happened to Jacob. We're left with a man in a situation married to two sisters, two sisters who now hate each other. Rivals. Actually, just like the situation of Jacob and Esau, isn't it? Two sisters at war. We're left with Leah, unloved, but fruitful, and Rachel, loved, but barren. Now Leah's going to start to conceive and she's going to name her children. And listen to the anguish of her naming. Verse 32. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuven. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction... Surely now my husband will love me. Reuven means, behold, look, a son. Look, a son, this son that I've had, finally this will spur some kind of affection, some kind of love in my husband's heart because I've borne him a son. Look, a son, Reuven, Reuven says very quickly, she conceived again. And she bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Shimon, Simeon, which means he has heard. She's speaking about God. He has heard. He has heard that I'm unloved. Now, we're not seeing Jacob's actions in this, are we? It's just son to son to son. We don't see what the daily reality is. We have to see it in light of her words. Verse 34. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Lavi, which is based on the word attached or attachment. He's going to be attached to me. Look at this. I'm building his family. Three sons I have borne him. Surely he will be attached to me. He'll have some love for who I am and what I have done. For him. Verse 35 And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Yehuda, Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Yehuda is the word in Hebrew coming from the root to praise. To praise. His name means praise or extol. Now, this verse is interesting because many commentators see it as, you know, Leah, she really was focused on Jacob. Love me, Jacob. Love me, love me. And then when she bears Judah, she's like, okay, forget Jacob. Now, now I'm going to praise God. Now I'm going to praise the Lord. For, I don't need his love anymore. Forget Jacob and what he hasn't given me. I'm going to praise the Lord. Okay. That's just not true. <laughs> I don't see any way around it. Because if you read the text, you're going to see her love has not been answered. Her grief has not been answered. Her saying, I, have, I will this time praise the Lord, does not fulfill the whole of her husband's lack of love. And you're going to see it when she names the rest of her kids. 
it's not done for her after she bears four sons. It's not like, okay, forget Jacob, I'm going to move on with my life. And equally so, I don't think it's a turn to the Lord when she wasn't before, because clearly all the names, with the exception of Levi, which doesn't say anything explicit about the Lord, are about the Lord paying attention to her. Shimon, he's heard. He's heard that I'm unloved. God has heard. Look, a son. Why did I have a son? Because the Lord saw that I was afflicted. She's been focused on the Lord the whole time. This is not a new turn for her. But there is something broken in it. There's something that seems to be almost like Leah has said, maybe there is no answer for me. Maybe there is no way in which my husband will love me after four sons I have borne him. Leah, think about this. We just see these as four verses. It's quick. But remember, this is four children. This is not minutes of pain. This is years of pain encapsulated in these verses. Each time thinking that this will cause her husband to love her. And of course it never does. The goal she thinks it will accomplish is unaccomplished. Now we have another actor in the scene, right? There's another person. What do you think, if we look back to our, our heading here, Leah's born four sons for Jacob. Who's going to be upset about that? Of course, Rachel is. This is chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she had borne Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. That's the cry of a broken heart. This is not, it would be nice if we had a child. Let's talk about family planning. <laughs> She's grieved because she watches the fruitfulness of her sister. Four sons Leah bore to Jacob. And Rachel, it's like she's offering Jacob nothing. What does she bring? And so she cries out in agony, give me children or else I die. But it doesn't spark the, the reality in Jacob that she thinks that well. No, it actually makes Jacob angry. And what does Jacob say? He says, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God? He who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. Jacob says, this is not from my hand. It's the Lord. Children, the gift of the Lord. This is his business, not mine. I, I can't do anything about it. But I think you hear in Rachel's cry the amount of shame she bears, the amount of pain, the amount of guilt she must feel. But Jacob, Jacob's angry that is placed at his feet. He's not happy that this is being treated as if it's his fault as if this situation is his design, when it is not. So what does Rachel do? Well, she comes up with an idea. An idea we've seen before. She said, here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave Jacob her maid, Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went in to her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Don. Don means judgment or vindication. What's she claiming? Well, she's claiming that in the court of God, there is a struggle, a fight between her and her sister. And when she names him Don, judgment, she's saying, the Lord has ruled in my favor. 
That's the point <coughs> of the name. Judgment. Dan, as we say. Judgment. It is a ruling in my favor. And you're going to see that she says that again in the next name too. But God's ruled in my favor. Somehow through Bilhah, I have had a son. I've produced something for Jacob. So Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Naphtali is actually a really rare word, but the most, you know, the, the best guess we have is that it is, means wrestling, a struggle. It's this name of a struggle, of a wrestling between. Same thing here, right? She's saying, I have struggled. I, I've wrestled with my sister and I've won. I don't know how she's counting two to four, but Rachel clearly, uh, I think she's trying to, Gin up some hope in herself. But listen to the names. We've heard six names so far. <clears throat> These are not happy names. They're dark names. They're grief-filled names. Because of the plight of these women. So, whatever Rachel can do, you can bet Leah can one-up. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him God. God means fortune or, or lucky, to be lucky, to be fortunate. So she named him Fortune because she had another son. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Asher means to be blessed or happy. So she named him that. She sees that the fruit of her efforts is, is working. She's now had six sons. Six sons for Jacob. Okay. In the middle of this, we get one narrative. And this narrative to me shows the depth of the sadness of the situation. It's, it's great. It's a great story. It's a sad story, but it, it really shows us where they're at. At this point, we're six sons deep. So it's already been minimum... Six, about six years, right? Give or take a few. It could be less, obviously, based on the nine-month gestation. But roughly six or so years. Okay, verse 14. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, the oldest, the oldest of Leah, went and he found mandrakes in the field. And he brought them to his mother, Leah, then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? Listen to the bitterness. So Rachel said, fine, therefore Jacob may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. What's going on in this story? It's an odd story. Key to it is this plant, mandrakes. What is that? Are we talking Harry Potter? Like mandragora, a little screaming plant? No, uh, mandrakes are a pretty rare plant in Mesopotamia, but the point is this. The one thing mandrakes were known to do was to increase fertility. What's going on here is that Rachel's looking for anything 
that can help her have a child. So when Reuben finds the mandrakes, Rachel, in her desperation, is looking for anything that can help her. Anything that can still let her have a child of her own. Despite her happiness with Dan and with uh, Naphtali, she, she wants to still have a child of her own. So she trades with Leah. And what does she trade? She trades a night with Jacob. What does that mean? Well, it means that Leah is not with her husband consistently. Rachel, as the favored wife, is the one who sleeps with her husband every night. Leah is alone. The pain of the trade, so that both of them can receive something they want, Rachel, a child, Leah, a night with her husband. The irony of it, of course, for Rachel is she does this for fertility. And the result of it is that God gave heed to Leah. And Leah conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now put yourself in Rachel's position. You just traded for a fertility plant. You let Leah have one night with him. And what does it, what happens? Leah conceives again. So Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Yisachar. Yisachar is like the idea of recompense. That's why she talks about the wages. It's a recompense. I've been paid for what I did with my maid. The Lord, because I gave my maid to my husband, now I'm, being, I'm, I'm, I'm reaping the, the payment of what I did. That even now I'm, I'm conceiving again. Whatever the case, it seems to restore something between Leah and Jacob. Because again, she conceives a sixth son. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me. Because I have borne him six Sons. So she named him Zavalun. Zavalun is the word right here that says dwell. Interestingly, the other translation for it is honor. The honor of dwelling. So it could be my husband will dwell with me. It could be my husband will now honor me. Different translations have it differently. The point is, Leah is not done longing for Jacob. After six sons, maybe, maybe he will honor me. Finally, I have borne him six boys. Maybe finally he will dwell with me. Maybe that yearning that I have will finally be fulfilled. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Dinah is the feminine form of Dan. She's named Judgment Vindication. Maybe Rachel's saying the same thing. In the court of the Lord, the Lord is found in my favor. He's judged in my favor. So he, she names her daughter Judgment. Vindication. And lastly, what's going to happen after all these children? Finally, the Lord's going to answer Rachel. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So Rachel conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Yosef, saying, May the Lord give me another son. May the Lord add to me another son. 
Yosef means he added. He added. Or he gave. And her hope, she prays a prophetic hope. Now that I've had one, may he give me yet another. And that's where our passage ends tonight. Now, if you're left there, uh, I mean, you're, you recognize you're in for a tragic ride, right? <laughs> like, everything we just read is a setup for what? It's a setup for the Joseph story. Think about the family dynamic. Think about the sons. And then imagine what level of family strife there would be in this family. Now, who is Joseph? Whose son is Joseph? Joseph is Rachel's son. Who do almost all of the rest belong to? Leah. And of course, the other two from Rachel's side are actually not from Rachel. They're from her maid. And now Rachel has her own. Now, does the murderous intent of Joseph's brothers make a little more sense now? Who do you think is daddy's favorite? Who comes from the loved wife? Joseph does. Joseph comes from daddy's favorite. And the maid's children. What do you think their share is in the family? Well, it's not as much as the true-born sons, the ones that come from the true wives, the, and by that I mean the non-slave wives, right? not the concubines. I mean, the, the dynamics must have been heinous in that family. And we're going to see that they are, right? Joseph, when we get to, to Genesis 37, we're going to see how dark this story is, right? how dark it gets. So that's where we are in terms of what God is doing in Genesis, where we are here. But you also have to remember, he's answering the promise, even in the midst of this darkness. What's going on? Why is this story important? What does it matter in the Pentateuch? Well, if you remember what I've told you, in Genesis specifically, this is written post-Exodus, at least written down and compiled. What's the point? Because we're trying to figure out who this people that God took out of Egypt are. And at no point have we gotten closer to understanding who they are than we finally see the 12 tribes. This is who they are, a people steeped in misery and steeped in strife. We're starting to see the form, the shape of the people of Israel who came out of Egypt. Because we're seeing both the pain of their mothers and that somehow in the midst of this darkness in this family, the answer to the, the descendants like the multitude of the sand and the multitude of the stars is starting to come true. With Abraham, we had one boy, and we're like, whoa, like this is going to take a long, stinking time to get to the, the stars in the sand. And now with Jacob, it's 12. If you include Dinah in this passage, that's 12 kids, these important kids that are going to form the shape of it. Later, we'll see Benjamin later on in, in Genesis. And then the 12 tribes have taken shape before our eyes. We're that much closer to the exodus, that much closer to the defining event of this nation, of who they are, God's chosen people. So the promises, even in the midst of this darkness, are moving forward. They're, bring, they're being brought to pass. That's all wonderful and good. That's all beautiful at the reality of God's promise. 
It's all beautiful at the cosmic reality of what we've received through Jesus. It's all beautiful as we think about what God does on a national scale, on a cosmic scale. But what about these persons? What about Leah? What about Rachel? What about Jacob? Just as as people. I think in their story we see something of ourselves, which is what's so powerful about it. I know that I'm not typically a uh, jump-ahead person. I do it sometimes. But I I like to let the story speak for itself. I like to move through it with the movement of the story. But for this story to make sense, we have to look at their end. For us to understand God's answer to the pain of this story. And I don't know where you'll find yourself tonight. I don't know if you're going to find yourself as a Jacob, as a Leah, or a Rachel. I think there's different realities for each of them. See, for Jacob, put in a situation that wasn't his design, that wasn't his choice, For Jacob, if you're a Jacob right now in some situation in your life, put into some miserable situation that you couldn't help. You've got to learn to make the best of it. That's what God has for us as Jacobs. Because Jacob is not doing a good job here. Yes, this uh, we all can agree. The four-wife situation, not ideal. <laughs> it's not ideal. Marrying two sisters, not ideal. Jacob, throughout this entire passage, if there's one thing you notice about him, how passive he is. He does nothing to answer any of the problems of these women. He's angry at Rachel for her cry. And, and, and to be fair, what he says is justified. It's not, it's not his fault. He's right about it being in God's hands. But also, he, he's totally dismissive of Leah and where she's at. I mean, literally, look, look at the story. Leah hires him to have sex with her. Pays the mandrakes that he'll come in. That situation is baffling and probably the funniest part of the story where he just like comes in from the fields like, I hired you to have have sex with me tonight. He's like, oh, all right. And he just goes in. That's strange. That's strange. But what it highlights about Jacob is that it's almost like he's just there. He's not an active participant. He's not trying to make things better for this situation. He's just there. If you're a Jacob right now in some situation in your life, you've got to do your your due diligence to, to make it as good as it can be. Don't let everyone just sit in their misery. Do what you can. And for Rachel, for Rachel, you've got to Learn when you're in the chosen position to be thankful for what you have. Rachel's an interesting case because, again, her pain is very real. I'm not denying the pain she's experiencing. Her situation is not enviable. She is in a bad situation where she is married to the same man as her sister. She's barren. She's not having any kids, which is a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, even... Modern day, I, I know, actually, I know many women who have struggled with infertility. And it's just, it's a heart-wrenching reality for them. It's an everyday reality. That pain doesn't go away. But for Rachel, she's the chosen, the chosen one, the, the favored wife. She is not the outcast of this situation. She is the matriarch, the, lead, the, lead, the woman leader of the family. She's the one sleeping with her husband every night while Leah goes to bed, probably cries herself to sleep with all her kids around her every night. And no husband who cares for her. 
A man she's married to, but no love. For Rachel's, if you're a Rachel in a situation right now, you've got to do your best to make it better. Do your best to make it better for the other person and be thankful for where you're at. Remember, your pain is real. I'm not denying that. Remember in gratefulness where you are. Who you are. That you definitely do not have the same situation as Aaliyah here. For Rachel, it's interesting too because if we look at where she ends, we look at where she's headed. She's waiting for another son, right? May he yet add to me another son. That's what she named Joseph. Well, where's that going to end for her? What she doesn't realize is that the Lord in answering that prayer is going to cost her her life. Genesis 35. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Benyamin. Benoni, son of my sorrow, because it cost her her life. But Jacob, who loved Rachel and loved her children the most, named him Benjamin, son of my right hand, the son in the place of honor next to me, right? My right hand at my side, the honored son. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Rachel didn't realize what she had until it was too late, I think. <laughs> the life she had to live was her and Joseph still waiting for another son. And when that son came, her life was gone. She didn't seem to realize the blessing she had. But maybe you're a Leah. And I saved Leah to last because her story is my favorite. Maybe you're the outcast. Maybe you're the unloved one. Maybe you're the one constantly waiting. No matter how much you do, no one is ever going to love you the way that you deserve. No matter how much you do for them. No matter how much you care. No matter how much you honor and love. There is no recourse in this life. I renamed this sermon from the unloved wife to the chosen wife because of what we see with Leah. Because see, in Jacob's eyes, she was unloved. She was not chosen. But in God's eyes, she's the chosen wife. She's the one God chose. What argument do I have? We've got two points. We'll start in Genesis. Actually, both are from Genesis 49. One relates to her personal life. One relates to a more cosmic experience. The first is, of course, she's chosen what is said about her beautiful son, Yehudah, Judah. In Genesis 49, as Jacob blesses his sons, this verse, 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Now, who is this scepter referring to? Well, the first place we're going to stop is, of course, David. Because David comes from Judah. But if we extend that out, of course, we know it goes to the true scepter, the one scepter, the only one worthy to bear it, which is Jesus, who comes from Judah. See, it's through Leah that the line of Messiah came. Not Rachel. Everything looked like it would be Rachel. Remember, she's the younger sister. What has God done consistently in Genesis? He's preferred the younger to the older. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Abraham, not Nahor. It's Jacob, not Esau. So you, if you just think about it logically, it's like, okay, well, Rachel, she's the one. And of course, Genesis is going to focus on the greatness of Joseph, of course. Because he's a great man. But it's Judah that Messiah comes. Because God chose Second point. This is personal. This is for her. And I love it because it's just a line. It just seems like it's a random line in Genesis and no one would pay it any attention whatsoever. No one would think, wow, look at the power of this story. Look at how it ends for Leah's story. But to me, it's the reminder that what we miss in life what may not feel like it'll ever come. And you know what? In Leah's case, maybe even in her own lifetime, it did not come. But in death, it did. Genesis 49, you know what's going on here. Jacob is a deathbed. It's a deathbed scene. Jacob's on his deathbed, so he calls all his sons to him, and he blesses them by name. Blesses each boy, all 12 of the tribes. And in it, he makes this comment. Genesis 49, verse 31. And I think it'll mean something to you guys already because we've walked through the whole book of Genesis together. I think you'll get it. Jacob's talking about where to bury him when he dies. And he says, There they buried Abraham and his wife, Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. Jacob buries Leah in the cave at Machpelah with the patriarchs. It wasn't Rachel. Rachel buried on the way to Bethlehem. No, it was Leah. Leah that Jacob put in the tomb of his fathers. Her life was suffering. You can't avoid that. That's just the reality. God speaks beyond the single life. And here, even in death, the unlike, even in death here in this moment, the unloved wife becomes the chosen wife. The one buried with Jacob's fathers, the one who is going to be the line of promise. Somehow, in the midst of the darkness of this situation, with everyone having competing motives, competing hopes, competing pains, God answers them all. Because Jacob doesn't love Leah, but God chooses Leah. And Rachel's barren, 
and he gives her a son. And the promises for Jacob that seem so far off and so unreal and probably seem clouded by all the pain and anguish and strife of his family, promises are moving forward. See, what I can't promise you is that God is going to answer your suffering to make it go away. That it will just evaporate and, and your life won't be filled with you know pain and, and misery. Sometimes that's life. I, mean, I can't promise you that the experience won't be Job. But just like Job, God answers it. He may not give us the answer we like. He may not even answer the question we ask. But he answers. He shows up. He speaks. For Job, like he says, that's enough for me. The presence is enough. The fact that I'm not alone is enough. And Leah too. Her life is suffering. But in the end, God makes it right for her in a way that stretches far beyond her solitary life. So that's my encouragement for you tonight. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe you're in any of those places. Know that the Lord walks with you. You're not alone. And His presence is enough. It's enough to sit with you be with you, to speak with you, and to give you a future and a legacy that goes beyond this one life, goes beyond these fleeting moments of suffering. God will answer your heart. He will make a way to move beyond the suffering and help you enter into glory he did for Leah okay I'm going to turn it over to Tyler